Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Amen. Well, let's open up Hebrews chapter 6. And if you have your notes, I, I don't know if I'm going to get through all these notes today, but I'd like to, but I don't know if we will time-wise, we'll just see. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to begin with verse 13. So we've been talking about how, we, we began with talking about Christ's superior revelation, and then how he is superior to the angels, how he is superior to Moses, and now we've been talking about how his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood and the high priesthood of Aaron and his descendants. And um, we had part one, and then last week we looked mostly at the big warning uh, that comes in the middle of it that's more of a challenge to our faith. And uh, now we're going into part two, whereas in part one we mentioned Melchizedek and uh, talked about Last week, how it was difficult for them to understand things concerning Melchizedek, not because the subject is difficult, but because they had become dull of hearing. And so here in part two, we're going to start off looking at Abraham, and then we're going to move in to Melchizedek if we get there today, and I think we will at least begin that part today. So this is part two of this this argument. Uh, The entire argument is based on the uh, understanding from Scripture that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and therefore, because he's greater than Abraham, he's also greater than Aaron, who is a descendant of Abraham, and greater than the entire Levitical priesthood. And so let's begin with chapter 6 and verse 13, and I'm going to read from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter through verse 20. For when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So the two key words here that we need to focus on uh, this evening and this part of it is a promise and an oath. A promise and an oath. The swearing has to do with the oath that will be mentioned here. The promise and the oath. So for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Well, when you add in the surely part, it becomes an oath. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. That's true, right? If somebody swears by, to, to something, we've kind of lost that a little bit in our sight because our society doesn't believe in anything anymore, but they swear to God, swear on my mother's grave, swear on something like that. And I'm not saying we should be swearing, but, <laughs> but at least in court, when you go to court, you, know, you swear by something greater than you, yourself. You can't swear by yourself. You swear by something greater than yourself. So for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now we've completely lost that in our culture also. But you remember a time if you watch old cowboy movies or something like that, that you didn't have to sign a piece of paper, right? That your word was your bond. And if you made an oath and you swore to God, then... So it was throughout all of human history because people actually believed in God, then that was the end of the dispute because you put your life on the line before God. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeableness of his purpose, that his purpose cannot be changed, interposed with an oath. And we'll talk about this word interposed. So that by two unchangeable things, I'll explain that, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So there's some very familiar verses sprinkled into this passage that we just read and several things that I want to explain I want us to look at this evening. So the first thing is we're, that, as I already said, we're talking about the promise that God made to Abraham 
and as we'll see, that he made to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, and the oath of God. So go with me back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 15, this is a story when Abraham offers Isaac up, takes him up on the mountain to offer him up to the Lord, and the Lord stops him, right? You know the story. And, uh, and uh, Abraham calls the Lord Jehovah Jireh, as we usually say, that the Lord is my provider, that the Lord will provide, because he provided a ram. He provides his, his son as the sacrifice. Then in verse 15, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. So we already know who the angel of the Lord is. Very often in the Old Testament when it says the angel of the Lord, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about him as the Son of God coming as the messenger from the Father. So he's speaking for the Father God, and he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, your only begotten son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In the New American Standard, and I hate it when they do this, it doesn't say his enemies, it says their enemies, but in the Hebrews, it's his enemies, and that's hugely important because Paul's going to make a big deal in Galatians about how seed is singular, and seed refers to Jesus Christ, that the blessing is on the Son of God. So your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now go with me over to Galatians chapter 3. We're talking about the promise and the oath. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. In Galatians 3, 15, we read, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Paul is writing. Even though it is only a man's covenant, covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. We've also somewhat lost that, too, in, in our culture, but um, nonetheless, you can understand what he's talking about, and the word covenant could be translated as a last will and testament, also, and sometimes it's used in that context in the things that Paul is writing, but when someone makes a last will and testament and it's been ratified, then nothing can be changed in it. Okay, well, today, of course, you can change your will and cut people out of your will, but God doesn't do that. Okay, and that's really good news for every one of us. God's not going to cut you out of his will. But when it says ratified, it's referring more than just that it was written. But if we put this together with other scriptures in the New Testament, we're going to understand that that will and testament is ratified with the death of that person. And even today, after the death of that person, well, no, you can fight things in court, but <laughs> technically, after the death of that person, whatever's written there, that's what it is. That's the way it goes. And Jesus died to ratify that covenant. So he says that's how it is with men's covenant. And if things have changed in our culture, that doesn't hinder us from understanding what he's talking about, because that's how it should be. And in verse 16, it says, Now the promises, so we're talking about promises and oath. Promise and the oath. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. We just read that. Not just to Abraham, but to his seed. And then Paul says, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Which, by the way, is a great scripture that shows you that not one single jot or one single tittle, as Jesus said, will pass away from the scripture until everything has been fulfilled. Because just the plural or singular in the scripture is inspired by God. And so he says that that seed is referring to Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, after what we just read in Genesis, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. And it was ratified by the blood of that ram that was caught in the thicket. 
But the ram caught in the thicket, of course, is just a shadow or a type of Jesus dying on the cross. So it cannot nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. We don't have time, but he's going to go on from there and talk about why the law was brought in, and that's really good, and you can read it, but it's not uh, necessary for what we're looking at in, in Hebrews today. So, again, this should be really good news that radically changes our attitude toward God, that our salvation is not based on the law. Our salvation is based on a promise that God swore by he made an oath to keep that promise. And that promise was not even made to me. The promise was not even made to Abraham, per se, but it was really made to the seed, to Jesus. So my salvation is not dependent upon me being obedient to God, but is dependent only on the obedience of Christ Jesus, who was obedient unto the cross. And I know we understand that theologically, and we understand that on Sunday mornings. But we need to understand that every moment of our lives, that we cannot bring forth enough sacrifices to make God please. We're going to get to this later in Hebrews, but what pleases God is faith. That without faith, it is impossible to please God, that we trust in him. So then we go back, going back over to Hebrews, um, we read that God interposed. Uh, it says, uh, in order... Um, to show to the heirs of the promise. He wants to show this to you tonight. He wants you to see this like so clearly that, that you understand it for the rest of your life. That his purpose is unchangeable. And his purpose is for you to be saved. His purpose is to seek and to save that which is lost. If we preach the gospel to people with that kind of, without all the technical stuff maybe, but with that kind of love and that kind of understanding... It's hard to understand how people could ever not come to the Lord. And of course, that does happen. But oftentimes it happens because we put some law or put some requirement as a fence between them and God instead of bringing them directly to Jesus Christ. So he says he wants to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. And in order to do that, it says that he interposed with an oath. Well, the word interposed in the Greek is only used one time in Scripture, and it's used right here. Um, it is the act of a mediator. It's the verb that describes a mediator. The word for mediator is used in a few other places, but this verb of mediating, God mediated with an oath. He interposed with an oath. And it has to do with, it's a very technical term that has to do with being a guarantee that the covenant will be fulfilled. Okay? It's, it's the guarantee. The oath is the guarantee. And he swears by himself. So if you understand what it's saying, what it's saying is if the oath were ever to be broken or if the promise were not to be fulfilled, then God would no longer be God. That's how serious it is. Because he interposed with an oath. Because he wants us to know with certainty that our salvation, his purpose, his will is unchangeable. So the word unchangeable, it means unchangeable, but in, in relationship to what it's saying here, it means something that's immutable, uh, something that's unalterable. You actually could not get Congress together and get all 50 states together to vote on it and make an amendment to it. There's no possibility to amend God's constitution. There's no possibility to amend this because he sealed it with an oath, and it was ratified with blood. It's done. And that's really good news to us because it's dependent only on God's word and not on my obedience. You know that the scripture says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God is faithful. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we read, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm going to give you a few more scriptures about his mediation. In Job chapter 9, Job chapter 9, and in verse 32. In, if you've never read Job, by the way, someday we'll do a series on Job, but if you've never read Job, 
spend time with Job. It's, it's such a powerful book. But in Job chapter 9, verse 32, Job complains. And he says, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire. Baseball term. <laughs> no mediator. No umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. And so to me, it feels like he's throwing pitches and calling strikes from the mounds, from the mound. And to me, I think they're all balls. And I don't understand what's going on because there's no umpire between me and God. And his complaint is prophetic. He's saying that I need God to become a man so that I can talk to him directly. And I need him to mediate this man. And it's actually a reference to the Trinity already, though you don't necessarily maybe see the Holy Spirit in here. I mean, you could infer the Holy Spirit in here, but this understanding that I need God to become man, to become flesh. And of course, we know that that's what Hebrews is talking about. And then in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, this theme, I just want to show you that this theme runs throughout Hebrews. In Hebrews 8 verse 6, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And then in chapter 9, verse 15, it says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant. And then in chapter 12, and in verse 24, chapter 12, verse 24, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It speaks better than the blood that cries out about my guilt. It speaks better than the blood that constantly calls strikes on me and constantly throws me out because his blood paid the price for all of my sins. So that theme is going to run throughout Hebrews. Now, let's go back over to Hebrews uh, chapter 6. It says, so that by two uh, unchangeable things or by two immutable things, and perhaps as you're reading that tonight or as you've read it in the past, you're not really sure what it's talking about. Well, I told you in the beginning. What it's talking about is the promise that God made and the oath. The promise alone, inasmuch as he is God, would have been enough. But to make sure that we never thought we could be saved by the law, to make sure that we always trusted in his grace, he made an oath also. So these two things... The promise and the oath, they are immutable. They cannot be changed. And the scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. They are immutable. They cannot be changed because, as we read here, and it's a quote from Numbers 23, 19, it is impossible for God to lie. Okay? There's some things in scripture that are like in sort of, maybe sort of like in geometry, they're, they're axioms. You, they're just givens. That's just how it is. <laughs> you don't have to prove it. Everything else gets proved based on, on those things. And this is one of those things. It is impossible for God to lie. You can think about it logically, but you'll still never get to the end of the whole thing. But, I mean, basically, if he lies, he's not God anymore. If God says something, it is truth because he is God. So because it's impossible for God to lie, he gave us both the promise and the oath. This is actually really an exciting revelation <laughs> because it just tells me that God really loves me, that I'm really his treasure, that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a wretch, but he made me his treasure, that he came to seek and to save that which is lost, and it didn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. So the Father makes the promise. The Father makes the oath through the lips of his son, and the son himself is the oath because he is the sacrifice for the oath. And so it says here that we have a hope set before our eyes, a hope that is revealed to our understanding by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that that's being revealed to you even now as we look at it. And so we should have strong encouragement, it says, from this hope. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters beyond the veil. So before we talk about the anchor of the, the soul, um, look at chapter 7, verse 19 real quick. 
and we might get to it tonight again. But in verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the hope that we have that's being made clear before our eyes, that is revealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Remember that hope deals with something future. Okay? So you have a future. And everything is truly working for the good because you love God and you're called according to his purposes. And that hope is fixed in Christ Jesus. He is our hope, our hope for the future. And that hope is fulfilled in his second coming and in our resurrection from the dead and in the coming of his kingdom and in the coming of a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to live forever. And all the pain and all the suffering I, I know that this is true. They will not even be remembered as it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. So we have to keep our eyes on this hope. And this hope is being revealed to us by the Holy Spirit and it gives us strong encouragement. Well, the word encouragement in the Greek is paraklesis and it means comfort. And uh, it's the name that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, that I will send you another comforter. And the word technically means one in Greek, it means one who will walk beside you and help you. He's always going to be, it can, it can be an, an advocate, it can be your attorney, it, it could be whoever you want to put in there, <laughs> but he is your comforter, that he comforts you. Does anybody know what that means? Go look at the Latin roots of that. But it, fort means strength, like a fortress, to have strength together with the Holy Spirit. He strengthens us. And we think of comfort as just, oh, you poor little baby, but that's just some kind of low-level sympathy. Comfort is coming in and helping you, you know, and not just feeling sorry for you, but helping you through the situation. So we have this strong comfort, this hope that we have. Now, I want to talk about the anchor for the soul before we move on to Melchizedek. But first, I want to go back to Genesis 15. But for time's sake, I'm not going to open it and read the entire story. But you can read the story later, and hopefully you know this story. So in Genesis 15, God... God several times makes this promise to Abraham. And several times he interposes with this oath. The ultimate interposition of the oath is in what we just read there. But there's a time when God makes this promise concerning Abraham's seed. right? And it's not just Isaac. Okay? It comes through Isaac, but it's not just Isaac. Isaac's just the, the next one in line. It's Jesus. And in Genesis 15, we read about God making a covenant with Abraham. And we see there that there are uh, three-year-old sacrifices. And these sacrifices have to be cut in half. Okay, so you've got a, a lamb, you know, and it has, it has to be a three-year-old lamb. And it has to be cut, you know, exactly symmetrically in, in half. It's, you know, filleted open like this. Okay, and it's laid open like that. And that's the, the sacrifice. And one piece is put on this side, and the other piece is put on this side. And then there is what's called in the scripture a smoking oven. It's like a, it looks like, to, to, to Abraham, it looks like an oven with smoke billowing out of it. And there's what's called a torch of fire. And so we know that this is the presence of the Father, and this is the presence of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We know we see this also later with Moses in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And this smoking oven and this torch of fire, they pass through these three-year-old sacrifices. And the three-year-old sacrifice split in half, cut into two pieces, is also a type and a shadow of Jesus after three years of ministry crucified upon the cross. And they pass through this, and the covenant is made by the blood of these animals, which is really by the blood of Jesus. Okay? But here's the really cool part about it. If you'll read it, Abraham's sound asleep. God makes him go to sleep. He has nothing to do with the covenant. He has nothing to do with the promise or the oath. The covenant is made between the Father and the Son. Jesus, it, more than any other name, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Way more than he called himself son of God. He called himself the son of man. The representative of all mankind. The one who is the mediator and stands before God the Father on our behalf.
to reconcile us unto God. So once again, we have this testimony that it wasn't even dependent on Abraham. It's dependent, it's not dependent on me, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus alone. And so we are saved completely by faith and by trust in Jesus Christ. And this is our great hope, a hope that it says is an anchor for our soul. Well, most of you have probably been out on a boat before and used an anchor, so I don't need to tell you what that is. Okay, but every time I read this, I remember this time that I was fishing with my friend Andre on this huge lake in the north of Russia, huge, huge lake, and uh, like, like the Sea of Galilee type size of lake. He's the pastor there now. And we were out fishing in an inflatable boat, and we were catching a lot of fish. And it was storming really, really hard. I mean, it was raining really hard and lightning. And we should not have been out there, but we just kept catching fish. For some reason, they were biting like crazy. I mean, I'm talking about like we came home with hundreds of fish. And so many that when I got home, I was sorry I caught so many because you have to clean them all. And, uh, and we, we were just having a great time. And, and while we're out there, you know, we put an anchor down because the current's pretty, pretty strong. And, uh, we're, you know, we're not fishing in the deep part. We're fishing in a more shallow part, and the anchor will reach the bottom, and it's holding us down at the bottom. And it's keeping us in place. Well, we hoisted, pulled, whatever you say, nautical term, fed anchor up into the boat because we wanted to move to another place. And as we're moving to this other place, and we have to row over there, and we're taking turns rowing, all of a sudden, this storm came up that, to me, it was like the storm on the Sea of Galilee in, in the Bible. I mean, it was literally, we were afraid we were going to drown. It was such a storm. And, like, I am inside the boat, but to this day I see it like I'm a third person standing there looking at it. I can see the boat going up on these waves and Kevin going, ah, and Andre going, ah, and everything, and everything that was going on then. And God got us through that. Praise the Lord. He saved us. But what I always think of that when I think of this scripture, why would I ever pull the anchor up when I've got the anchor settled beyond the veil, okay? If we have an anchor that goes beyond the veil. You know what the veil is? The veil uh, in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from all of us. So this veil separates us from the Holy of Holies. In Genesis chapter uh, 3, I think it is. I think I wrote it down. Oh, no. What am I thinking? Of course, Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the, the heavens, um, it says that he created the, the, the firmament. In my Bible, it says the heavens, but firmament is probably a better word. And this firmament that would separate the waters below from the waters above. So there is a firmament, and I, and I know, some people argue with this, but I know we made it to the moon. Whoopee! And maybe we'll make it to Mars, but you know, that's really far away still from God's heaven where he dwells. There is a space created between, to separate us from the presence of God. And God created it that way from the very beginning. That's your room. This is my place. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And there's this veil that separates us from the presence of God. And only the high priest can go in there once a year. And when he goes in there, he has to make a sacrifice, all kinds of sacrifices for his own sin. He's only being allowed in, you know, by special permission. And, but here when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? That veil is rent. And it says that it's rent from top to bottom. You can go study this. It's impossible for that veil to be rent from top to bottom by any force other than God. And not from bottom to top, but God rends the veil. He opens the veil. So it says that that hope is an anchor for my soul. It's an anchor for your soul. So the very fact that it talks about the anchor of the soul, we know that it's talking about encouragement. It's talking about where we live today. Because most of our problems are not physical, are they? Most of them are soulish, right? And it's the struggles in our soul. But there's this anchor for our soul. And that anchor actually, I mean, it's kind of an in, inverted picture because heaven's up there. And usually we think of an anchor going down. But that anchor is sunk into the presence of God. Jesus is already there. So as long as I hang on, there's no way that I can ever get off course. I'm going to go to where that anchor is. I'm going to be held there that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nobody can snatch 
the sheep of the good shepherd out of his hand. Even if one gets lost, he'll leave the 90 and 9 to go find that one. And we need to hear that message. We need to know that message. We need to have that settled in our heart. Because, you know, it's important for us to talk about repentance and about confessing our sin and about morals. And, I mean, in, we have all kinds of moral problems in our nation. And I'm not making light of those things. But, but honestly, how are we ever going to have good morals if we're going to try to do it by the law? Because you can't. I mean, you can't. You just, you just fail all the time. We need the power of grace in our lives. We need to come boldly before the throne of grace. And so that's the, the argument that's being set out here, to show us that Jesus alone is able to bring us into this eternal life. And he's able to do that, as it says in the last line, because he is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So let's get into Melchizedek, at least a little bit now. Okay, and notice the word forever. It's, that's a pretty important word here. He's a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let me try to do verses 1 through 10. So I'm just going to read them, and then we're going to look at the story. There's not a whole lot to explain here. Um, it's not difficult to understand what's written here. It says, for this Melchizedek, if you have no idea who Melchizedek is, that might be hard, but we're going to talk about that. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem is Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So again, if you've never read Genesis 14, you don't have any idea of what they're talking about. But every Jewish reader of this text in the first, in the first century would have definitely known exactly what's being talked about. But it's not hard for us to go to Genesis 14, and we'll read a couple of verses over there in a minute. Um, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. In other words, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. A tenth part of all the spoils that he collected in that battle. That this Melchizedek was first of all, by the translation of his name, and again, all these readers would have known Hebrew, king of righteousness. That's what the name Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness that he was the king of righteousness. And then also that he was the king of Salem, Shalom. That's what Salem is, Shalom, which means king of peace. So the argument's being made to us, and this is really important. I've talked about this over and over again. This argument is not based on anything except Scripture. Okay, It says this is what the Scripture says. There's no attempt to try to go find... Let's try to go back and find out the real history of this and look this up on Wikipedia and find something else out about this Melchizedek or anything like that. Everything is based strictly on what the Scripture says because it's only impossible for God to lie. It's completely possible for Wikipedia to lie, but it's not possible for God to lie. So what God said, that's the truth. And so based on Scripture, the argument is made here that this person to whom Abraham paid tithes he is a king of, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And then it says, without father and without mother. Well, how's that possible? Without genealogy. Well, that explains to you how it's possible. If you go to the Old Testament, you will not find a single major person in the Old Testament uh, of which nothing is written about their father and mother. Genealogy is huge for, for the Hebrew mind, right? I mean, the whole Old Testament is, I mean, you've got books, you've got whole chapters of books where you get bored reading it because it's just names of everybody and this whole long list of this genealogy. So the point that's being made here isn't, well, of course he had a mom and dad. No, it doesn't matter. The scripture does not give him a genealogy. That's what's being made here. That's what's important, okay? So it says he's without father and without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Nothing's recorded about his birth. Nothing's recorded about his death. And yet, and you think, well, that's not because he, he's a minor character. Oh, no. Abraham paid tithes to him. That makes him a super major character, if you can use those two words together. Because Abraham's the big father of our faith. But this guy's greater than Abraham. Because you don't pay tithes tithes to someone lesser than you, 
you give a tenth to somebody greater than you. So he gave tithes to this one. So um, it says, uh, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he is made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth or a tithe of the choicest spoils. And those indeed, follow the argument here, of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth or a tithe from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, so I don't know if you could follow that argument completely or not. It's really actually quite simple. Uh, Levi, this is a big understanding of scripture. We know it's proven by scientific studies of DNA today that Levi was in the loins of his father, Abraham. So when Abraham paid, paid a tithe to Melchizedek, Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Aaron paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Moses paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Okay? So that is part of the argument that since Abraham had paid a tithe to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and his priesthood, because the scripture tells us he was a priest of the Most High God, is a greater priesthood than the priesthood of Levi, or the priesthood of Aaron, which is established by the law that came more than 400 years later. That this priesthood precedes the priesthood of Levi, and as we'll see, and we're not going to get to it tonight, but as we'll see, this priesthood extends way beyond the priesthood of Levi, because the priesthood of Levi is getting ready to come to an end. Okay? Again, this was written before the temple was destroyed. But they believe the words of Jesus, and they know that the temple is soon going to be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, the, priests of Levi, the priesthood of Levi is over. I know a man named, uh, that lives in Israel now. He lived in Russia. He moved to, immigrated to Israel. His name is Boris Kohan. If you've ever heard the last name Kohan or Kohan or it's pronounced different ways, that, that word in Hebrew means uh, priest. And that person who has that name is of the tribe of Levi, whether they can prove that or not, because that's where that name comes from. But he has no priesthood. He's actually a born-again Christian and a pastor, but, but he has no priesthood because there's no place to offer sacrifices. And if you can't offer sacrifices, then there's no priesthood. And Jews today cannot offer sacrifices because there's no uh, Ark of the Covenant. There's no temple. There's no place to offer the sacrifices anymore. That it's been brought to an end. But the priesthood of Melchizedek continues on. Okay, so let's talk about Melchizedek for a minute. And in order to do that, let me just read out of Genesis three verses. Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, we, we have this story, and there's these kings, and they're going to war, and Abraham rallies all his servants and puts together his own little army, and Abraham wins the victory with his army. And in verse 18, let's just read from verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, 
who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. That means Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe of all the spoils of the war. But when it comes to Sodom, um, uh, the king of Sodom said, I'll make you rich and all this stuff. And Abraham says, I don't need any of your riches. I don't need anything from you. He doesn't give anything to Sodom. But he gives everything. He gives a tithe to uh, Melchizedek. Okay? It's also interesting that the tithe precedes the law. It's already there way back in the book of Genesis. Okay? Um, so, notice that the first thing Melchizedek does is bless him. Before Abraham gives him a tithe, Melchizedek blesses him. In Hebrews, it says that it's absolutely settled, and nobody's going to argue with this, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Also, kind of something we've lost in our culture, because in our culture, we don't really make a big deal out of blessings anymore. You know, but children are blessed by their parents, and that blessing is passed on from generation to generation. And a blessing can't come from the lesser to the greater. The blessing comes from the greater to, to the lesser. He has something to share, right? So before he ever receives a tithe from Abraham, he first blesses him. And this goes right along with everything we've already been talking about. You can't buy a blessing from God. You don't have to give your tithe to be blessed. You don't have to give your tithe to be saved. You don't have to bring a bunch of offerings or donate a bunch of money or donate a bunch of time in order to please God because it's never going to please God anyway. He's got all the money and all the time he needs. Okay? Melchizedek comes out to bless Abraham. Abraham could have walked away and not even given him a tithe. But he got the blessing before he gave the tithe. And not only does he give him a blessing with words, but he brings out bread and wine. Well, that's such an obvious symbolism, I don't even need to talk about it. It's already there in Genesis that this is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, some people believe that Melchizedek is a prefiguration of Jesus, that this is Jesus appearing like the angel of the Lord. And, and I'm not going to say that that's not possible. Uh, I'm going to say that it's not probable, but I'm not going to say it's not possible. Um, for, for several reasons, but none of those reasons are really important, okay? Because I'm going to tell you some things about Melchizedek that every Jew reading Hebrews would have known th at that time. But even these things I'm going to tell you, they're not that important because the argument is not based on the Wikipedia facts about him, okay? The argument is based on what the Scripture says, that the king of righteousness, the king of peace, came out to bless Abraham, and he is a priest of the Most High God. So that's Jesus. It's the priesthood of Jesus. So, rabbinical tradition from the most ancient of times, and every Hebrew reading the book of Hebrews would have known this at that time, made Melchizedek to be one and the same as Shem, the son of, of Noah. And that is actually a really high possibility. Okay? Uh, and, and why is that such a high possibility? Because according to the years that Shem lived, he actually, if you study this out, you can read about it in, in Genesis chapter 11, the genealogies, Shem actually lived 37 years longer than Abraham, even though it's like hundreds of years later, okay? Because Shem lived for 502 years after he got off of, of his daddy's ark. He was really an old man. So he lived longer than Abraham, so it's a physical possibility. Uh, there's no question in my mind that Abraham would have had some contact with Shem, and I'll tell you why. Because Shem carries the blessing, okay? You got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as much as I honor Japheth, because I'm more descended from him than any of the other of those characters, neither Ham nor Japheth carried a blessing. Shem carries the blessing from Noah, okay? And after Shem, you have almost nobody until Abraham. It's like, I'm not saying there weren't any righteous people, but there's nothing told about any of them. In the scripture, Abraham's the next big guy that comes on the scene. And he's already living in Babylon and worshiping the moon god, okay, with his dad and all this stuff, and then God begins to talk to him, okay? How God talked to him, I have no idea, okay? Maybe Shem went on a journey over there and found him. 
I, I don't know how God talked to him, but I know that God talked to him, and God has many ways to talk to people. And Abraham becomes the father of our faith because he believed God. And God counted that unto him for righteousness' sake. So somebody passed this blessing on to Abraham, and that could only be Shem. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. Somewhere, Abraham heard the gospel. He heard the truth. And Shem was the holder of that blessing, the keeper of, of that, that truth. It's actually a pretty cool story. So it says in Hebrews that Melchizedek uh, has no genealogy. His genealogy is not listed. Well, we can find a genealogy for Shem, uh, but again, it's not based on Shem. It's based on this person, Melchizedek, that's written, as it says in the scripture. There is no father and mother. But here is the thing about Shem, though. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, I'm not going to open, it talks about the world before the flood being a different world than the world after the flood. It talks about the world that then was. It was a completely different world. It's the same planet, but even the physical appearance of this planet changed catastrophically because of that flood. And any scientist would tell you that, although he wouldn't probably believe in the flood, but he would talk about these ice ages and these things and all these kinds of things that changed the appearance of our Earth. Everybody knows this is not what it looked like to begin with, right? But that's not really what it's talking about either. What it's really talking about is all the people were wiped out. The entire population of the earth, gone, except for Noah and his family. So it was actually a different world. So we have here Shem, who was born, the physical Shem was born in a different world, and he died in a new world. He crossed over from the old world to the new world, and he lived long enough to pass that blessing on uh, to Abraham. So again... That doesn't matter for the, the argument. Uh, what matters is that the scripture does not list a genealogy for him, that the scripture does not list his birth, and that the scripture does not list his death, and that the scripture clearly says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this comes from Psalm 110. We'll get to that more uh, next week. So this is not something the Bible's clear on. Um, but it's actually important that the Bible's not clear on it. <laughs> because the mystery of Melchizedek is central to the argument made in Hebrews. That this is a mystery. And so you don't need to understand all the details. What you need to understand is that when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, he gave a tithe to Jesus. Okay? That he gave a tithe to the priest of the Most High God, who's the King of Righteousness, and the king of peace, and that he was made like the Son of God. It's important that there's the word like there also, because that does give us a hint that this is not actually the Son of God. He is not actually Jesus. Maybe it's Shem, maybe it's somebody else. But what's important is that we understand that the Old Testament scripture is a sign that points us to Jesus. Now, before this was written in Hebrews, I'm not sure anybody ever thought about this in relationship to Jesus. Paul doesn't bring it up, unless Paul wrote Hebrews. You know, Peter doesn't bring this up. This was like a really powerful revelation to show them that there are clues leading us to Jesus in the Old Testament that you've never seen before. And Melchizedek is a sign made like the Son of God. So Melchizedek remains a priest in perpetuity. Uh, he remains, a, his priesthood continues for eternity. His order has no beginning, and his priestly order has no end. In the Old Testament, Melchizedek is, without argument, the greatest of all the priests. And that is proven because Abraham pays a tithe to him. Okay? The Levitical priesthood received tithes from the people. They were commanded to take the tithes from the people. Levi was in Abraham's loins when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, and thus the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of the Levitical priesthood. Every Levitical priest is appointed to serve until his death, and when he dies, that's it. But Melchizedek is appointed to serve forever, appointed to serve perpetually. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and so he is greater than Abraham, 
and his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Okay, because of time, we need to stop there. Because if I start the next section, it's going to take about 20 minutes, and it's going to be way too much. And next week, we're not having Tuesday evening Bible study because i got to go over to that baccalaureate and pray a five-minute prayer. And our people have to do the ice cream and everything like that. So we'll get in a break from Tuesday evening next week. But try not to forget what we're talking about because I'm just kind of leaving you hanging. It's not over yet. <laughs> this is just the beginning. And as we go on in there, it'll, it'll, it'll come to a conclusion at the end of chapter 7, and then it kind of moves over into chapter 8, and chapter 8 just takes the next step to show that the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than any sacrifice ever made. And that's going to bring us up to the concluding parts of, of Hebrews. So we see it's just going one step at a time. If you, if you think about it, spend some time reading chapter 7 and just uh, focus on that, and we will finish it up next time, which will be in two weeks, on June the something. I don't know, but in two weeks. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. And I just pray that you really just open our eyes day after day. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord. Lead us not into the temptation to begin to try to live according to the law. Lead us not into that temptation, Lord, but deliver us from that evil one who came to you and said, quoting the law, tried to get you to sin, and you refused to do those things, even to cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. I pray, Lord, that we would not be amongst those who test you by casting ourselves down from the pinnacle of the temple, that we would not be among those who take the stones and try to force them into being bread, Lord, that we would just trust in you in our lives and know that you are our living bread, that we, of course, would never make a compromise to bow down before Satan in order to receive the riches of this world. But Lord, that we would not even make the little compromises that lead up to those big things. Help us, Lord, just to really get a revelation of the throne of grace, of your mercy, of your kindness toward us, Lord. Help us to raise our kids with grace and our grandkids with grace. Help us to be instruments of grace. Maybe when we were young, we never met grace one single time. It was nothing but law, law, law all the time. But today, Lord, soften our hearts. Reveal to us that your strength is made perfect in our weaknesses and that your grace is sufficient for us, Lord and that we would receive the mercy and the help that we, would, that we need in, in our lives, Lord. I thank you that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, and that you not only made a promise of our salvation, but you sealed it with an oath on your very name, Lord, that we who have been wretches, you have made us your treasure. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your love for us, Lord. We bless this word. I pray that it bring forth fruit in our lives, Lord, and you would just help us to continue to have this opportunity to study the book of Hebrews. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.